You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Uh, I am really grateful to be here with you all this morning. I'm also grateful the first through fourth graders left because this is a sermon that has demon possession in it, and that'd be a very weird thing to talk about in front of little kids. But I am extra grateful to be here this morning. It's been a really long week for me, um, and there's nothing quite like getting to come home, especially coming home to church and especially UBC. This week, uh, I started this week in Richmond, Virginia, um, at a conference working for people who are pursuing recovery in higher education and in high schools. And I ended the week uh, before today in Houston attending one of my grandmother's funerals. So it's been kind of a whirlwind, and I'm really glad to be back here with y'all. For those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Lily Ettinger. I came to Waco 16 years ago as a Baylor student, and I have a degree from Baylor, a Truett degree, and I pastored a church in West Cama, Texas, the one that's not very far from here, not the eight hours away version of West Texas, um, before joining UBC sometime in like before the pandemic. So whether that was a decade ago or three years ago, you're going to have to do the math because I'm still not sure. For those of y'all who do know me, this is my last summer living in Waco, at least for a while. I'm moving just down 35 to the town of my birth, the great big city of Austin. And when I accepted the invitation to preach here this morning, I didn't actually know that I was going to be moving later this year. Um, but since I made that decision, it's been a thought on my mind every Sunday and every moment since. I bring up going home in part because it's big news, but also because it's part of the text. At the end of today's text, Jesus tells the newly liberated man to go home and to share what God has done. My move did not involve being freed from a demon possession, thank God, um, but it has felt like somewhat of a rough shove from the Holy Spirit rather than one of those gentle whispers we all hope we get. Um, but I do wonder, as a person who's moving home, if maybe I share a few of those emotions that this man free from demons might feel. I wonder if, even though he's free, he might not be free from shame. I wonder if he finds starting over in a new place, in a new community, to be easier than facing the whispers of his past that might haunt him. I wonder if he wants to follow Jesus, maybe so he doesn't have to ask questions of himself, sort of a spiritual bypassing of all of those unanswered questions about why he was demon-possessed in the first place, all of those feelings of betrayal if he stays in the presence of the miracle. I wonder if he's afraid, afraid he will still be rejected because he was once imprisoned by demons, afraid of his new social oppression that he can't blame on the supernatural, but on his own community, afraid people will be angry with him for being healthy, afraid people might not believe that the demons are gone. Maybe he's afraid to know what parts of him are really him and what parts might have been the demons. 
And in all honesty, if I had all of those thoughts and feelings and emotions, staying in the presence of Jesus and miracle after miracle sounds way better than facing that. Because even after the demon possession is over, liberation doesn't quite feel complete. So I'm going to interrupt myself because weird text, right? Um, So obvious awkwardness moment here is the text in its time versus how we handle this text in today's time and today's culture, and particularly for UBC, because I've never heard us talk about demons or demon possession here, and I don't have the answers for this. Um, But also the history of how this text has been used. Um, And then I'll connect it back a little bit to tell you all a bit some of my own fears and wonders about moving to Austin. So again, text. It's about demon possession, which we don't talk about a lot here. And unless you were raised in a church that had deliverance ministries, you probably didn't talk a lot about demon possession growing up or in your communities. Most of us have no frame of reference for envisioning this, or we've been handed a really stigmatized understanding of demythologized demon possession as some sort of, oh, this is what they considered mental illness. They just didn't know that that's what it was, so they called it demon possession. For me, there's always this like one-two punch um, of stigma that comes with that. One, it does take away from this miracle idea the message that there is a spiritual realm, but it also gives a lot of us, especially Christians, a view of mental health that I don't think any of us consciously want to endorse, right? And it's led a lot of other people to say, well, all mental health issues are demonic possession issues. If you just prayed, if you just worshiped, if you just did these things, then then you wouldn't deal with this. It's a bad look. Like, there's no other way to say that. So as uncomfortable as it is to say, this text is about demon possession, I tend to stick to that pretty face value reading, that there's a miracle that I don't understand, that I haven't seen, knowing I can't wrap this up with a little bow for us, knowing it's part of scripture, knowing it's part of this worldview of scripture, and also knowing that even with all of those, I don't know what to do about this, that we can do this text a lot of justice with those unanswered questions. Because even though this text talks about demon possession, that's not the greater message of scripture and that's not the greatest message going on here. The history of how this text has used, has been used in some pretty wildly inappropriate and harmful ways, especially when it comes to that mental health messaging, has had an impact on probably many of us here. Any mystery illness, not just mental health, but a lot of different neurological illnesses, things from epilepsy to bipolar disorder to depression, anxiety, they've all been labeled demonic rather than as biopsychosocial illnesses with genetic roots and environmental factors. Even things that now we don't even consider illnesses or disorders as all, but are just part of the spectrum and wide variety and diversity of human beingness that may not have easily conformed in previous ages, it got this demonic diagnosis. Churches have used scriptures like this one to deny their congregants the use of trained therapists, told them that their lack of healing was a lack of faith, spoken against the use of life-saving medications. I'm hashtag Team Lexapro up here myself. 
They've counseled that prayer, confession, spiritual disciplines, and faith, all of which are good things in themselves, are all that one needs to be healed from neurological and mental health disorders. And I've been there. I've had ministers pray that I would trust God and leave medicine behind, that my continued struggles were a sign that God and I weren't really tight, that I was really just a rebellious, wayward sinner who liked the chaos that seemed to be going on in my life and by extension the lives of everybody around me, that I didn't really want God's peace or this really wouldn't be happening to me. And that history, a lot of that history for me, started in Austin, Texas, where as a 14-year-old who hadn't yet started high school, I found myself in a holding cell at the local juvenile justice facility. I had already been hospitalized that year. I'd already been in school suspended. I had already had a social worker. I already had a psychiatrist. I already had a beginning of that long list of trying to figure out what labels might describe the experiences that I was having and what pills could make me okay to be in the world, a way that might free me from a little bit of my own pain. I was 14 when that happened, and the next nine years weren't great. By the time that I was 23, I found myself waking up on an air mattress next to a cemetery with no idea how I got there. So when I read this and he's living in the tombs and I'm like, oh, I've woken up next to a cemetery, it's not fun. Thankfully, that's where my similarities to our demon-possessed man end. But I understand a little bit of what it means to that kind of suffering. Our stories, those of us who may have had mental health issues, neurological issues, issues where we were oppressed by something fully outside of our control, may not be the same. I don't know if anybody else here has some sort of, you know, relief from demon possession. And yet, our stories come back together at that path of liberation. The man filled with demons uh, got to that liberation a bit quicker than me in terms of once that healing started, Jesus commanded the demons out and they left to go to the pigs. I wish my own story of healing had been that easy. It, it hasn't been. But Jesus and his people not only healed him, but then they clothed him and engaged him as a human being made in the divine image, made in the image of God. So I, again, had no demons, but I know what it is not to feel in control of my own mind. And nothing's quite scarier to me than that. I know many of you guys wonder why I'm going to repeat this again, but I'm going to keep saying it because I know a lot of us need to hear it a lot. Demonic possession is not the same thing as mental health. Mental health is not the same thing as demonic possession. And yet we can still find mental health to be a useful entry point into this text, a useful entry point to understand how the kingdom of God can work in the world around us. As I mentioned, I was in Richmond, Virginia earlier this week. It's a very clean town. It's very green this time of year, never been before. And I was at a conference for supporting recovery in high schools and colleges. Um, one of my favorite things to do when I'm at conferences like this, because I've been going to this conference for like eight years, uh, is to talk to Uber drivers and tell them why I'm there, because their responses are like 
either the best or the worst, but it's always like, huh, that's different. Um, so I tell people like, oh yeah, I help people with addiction go to college. And some of them are like really excited. They tell me their stories. They tell me the stories of their family. They tell me they didn't know that they could go back to school for it. Something I love helping with. But some audibly laugh, like in that, oof, good luck. And I've heard that phrase, good luck, with that sarcasm of like, you are fighting a losing battle. Why on earth would you waste your time with that type phrase? And people say that in these cars while I'm like in their passenger seat along with other people, not knowing that often more than half the people in that car are people in recovery too. Even with our own freedoms, our liberation isn't complete. We don't know how the world will respond. And we have good reason, history, and just random encounters like Uber drivers to fear. When the swine herders ran away after they saw the demons leave, our brains tend to fill in the blanks with the negatives. They ran away because they were afraid. They ran away because they were angry. We don't know these things, but that's often what we tell in that story. It just tells us they ran away and told the town. Maybe they ran away with joy to share this miracle. But it tends to be human nature to assume that it's not going to go that way. In the biblical world, and I hope that we can continue to regain this, you were not given freedom or liberation or healing for yourself alone. Salvation was not a gift just for you to take for yourself and continue on with your life. It's always been a gift for the community. The liberation of this man was not just his alone, but it meant the liberation of his community. They didn't have to see him locked up. They didn't have to guard him. They didn't have to grieve each loving walk they took to take care of him. They didn't have to struggle with the tension of separating themselves from somebody that they loved to keep everybody safe. That's liberation, not just for one man, but for that family and for that entire community. His liberation is their liberation, the liberation of that community that can put down a living grief and no longer has to fear visiting the tombs. Liberation is not done in isolation. It belongs to all of us. And to declare or proclaim that liberation is not simply a testimony we give once, like we stand up here in church and do. It doesn't even require speaking. It is living again. It is a new life in community. It is God's work of binding up the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prisons of those that are bound by them. It is recovering the sight to the blind. It is the good news for the poor. And yes, it is casting out of demons. The thing that nobody told me or nobody really seems to tell you about liberation is how scary it can be. All of a sudden, you have the capacity to be responsible for yourself and no training in how to do that. When I was first getting into my own path of recovery, the first people that I got to call and called were my dads. So it is Father's Day, and we've already got to hear some really great Father's Day stories, and I'm going to tell you all a little bit about mine. So I am blessed to have two amazing dads who have known me since they heard my mother tell them that she was pregnant with me. I saw one of them yesterday, 
and I'll see the other tomorrow because today I get to spend with the dedicated and loving father of our own child. But when the haze of my illness began to clear, it was my father's who I called. And when the move to Austin became a real possibility, I called the same dad who picked me up that night when I was 14 from Juvenile Justice Center. Family is messy, and I know that for some of us, Father's Day is not a good day. And please know that we all want to honor your experience and see your pain here. And I know that this is my blessing of a dad, of two dads, who don't shame me, but embarrassingly brag me about me every chance that they get about my own liberation from a substance use disorder and my ongoing recovery. I get to view the, what my dads do and how they treat me as a rare example of how God gets to celebrate us, our healing and liberation in the world. Because my liberation has been their liberation as well. So what now? For those of us who are liberated, for those of us who are free or find us on the path to freedom. This story actually has an answer. I'm so glad I didn't have a parable today because they never have answers. But this story has an answer. While the free man wanted to go with Jesus, Jesus sent him home to tell the story of a liberating God. The God who could cast out demons as well as heal wounds. The God who gave this man a life to live with all of its routine and chores and monotony and family and neighbors and community. A life to live like many of ours at home in the sacred ordinary, an ordinary miracle from an extraordinary God, going about our days and making coffee and doing laundry, cooking and being near to our friends and our family. A life God calls most of us to is the life that God called this man he healed to. A life of liberation that blesses the whole community. It may be only a partial liberation yet, and I can't promise more than that to anybody. But the ordinary life is a calling I hope we don't take for granted in our communities today. And today of all days, there's a particular thing of liberation I can't not mention. There's an aspect to this story and when we talk about community liberation and God's continued work of liberation. On June 19, 1865, General Order 3, proclaiming the news of the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1st, 1863, so more than two years earlier, the news finally made it to the shores of Galveston, Texas, and the legal end of slavery hit our shores. And it was at churches like Reedy Chapel AME Church that heard those words of liberation before they were printed in newspapers around the state. All slaves are free. It was an emancipation day, a freedom day, and in the churches called a day of jubilee. Juneteenth has been a black church tradition starting from the day that it was first heard. It is finally, this year, for the first time, a national holiday. It was understood as a liberation given to them by God, not by slave owners, not by Abraham Lincoln, but a freedom given by God. Not all liberation is individual. 
Every liberation has that community aspect. And sometimes the kingdom of God shows up in communal ways. The Reverend Joshua Lazard, he's a Chicago Southside native now in Boston at Church of the Covenant, was on NPR this morning at about 5 a.m. because I was up too early. But he was repeating this theme that I've been speaking on all morning, and so when I heard it, I was like, okay, I'll add this because I just thought it was far better written than anything I could have said. He spoke about this theme, and he says, I remind listeners that Christians have a duty to manifest the themes of liberation and freedom. Our faith requires us to be active in restoring and repairing the wrongs that stem from America's original sin of slavery. So what now for those of us who are liberated and find ourselves on the path to freedom? I invite us to live ordinary lives in small and imperfect ways, seeking the kingdom of God, proclaiming liberation with our songs, with our spirits, with the work of our hands, UBC, we find and we know a gospel that is good news, that is freedom to the poor, that is freedom from personal and communal oppressions, that clothes the needy, and that honors the image of God in every human being. So what now for those of us who are liberated and find ourselves on the path to freedom? Go home and share what God has done for you. Amen.